Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring some films of the exploitation subgenre, as recommended by David Bax of Battleship Pretension, and in this week's episode, I'll be wrapping up the theme by talking about Mark L. Lester's Class of 1984, of course, released in 1982. And now, I'll admit that while I was watching this movie, I kept thinking, I can't decide if this is a very bad, um, intentioned drama, or, or I shouldn't say drama, but, but if it was a very bad film that Mark L. Lester was taking very seriously as a comment on um, youth culture and what he saw as a violent um, resurgence, not even resurgence, but a, a wave of violence in schools. Certainly that opening and closing title card would seem to indicate as such, or if this was supposed to be a tongue-in-cheek exploration of the theme that violence begets violence because at the end of this movie our lead bad guy um, Stegman as um, played by Timothy Van Patten has been vanquished if you will Um, our hero Andrew Norris the um, innocent and well-intentioned music teacher has triumphed over his torturers and his captors and yet both he and his wife and one could possibly argue the school are in much worse places than when they started out so it doesn't really feel like there's any victories or if there are they kind of feel like there are pyrrhic victories and this was the debate that I was having pretty much the entire time of watching this movie. And the conclusion that I ultimately settled on was that Class of 1984 is a bad movie. A movie which takes itself, I don't want to say very seriously, there are humorous, darkly comedic moments in this, but I do think that Mark L. Lester was trying to make a serious movie that was commenting on something that he thought was an epidemic of school-based violence that was gripping the world and the nation. Um, I ultimately came upon this for a couple reasons, and I'll run through those. Number one is, as I started, it's the title cards. The title cards open and close this are talking about the wave of violent assaults in schools, and that the fictional, and that this is based on a true story, and yet that uh, um, the situation that has taken place in Abraham Lincoln High School, see, we're very American, Abraham Lincoln High School, uh, is not the, the, its situation is not the situation every school yet. Um, so this kind of sets it up as though this is something that is based on a true story and is a 
a story worth telling because of a very real problem that is uh, coming up across the country or the world. Um, number two is um, Mark L. Lester finds this to be his best movie, uh, which is saying something considering that uh, his repertoire includes Commando. And now Commando is not a... I don't want to say it's not a good movie. It's incredibly entertaining if you view it as a satirical takedown of the conventional 1980s action movie fronted by the muscly, impervious villain. Um, in Commando, it happens to be Arnold Schwarzenegger playing the character of John Matrix. Um, but there is so much about that film which is funny, and I have to believe it's intentional, because if not, then we have a director who is woefully misguided in his directorial um, decisions and intentions, and who failed spectacularly at making a serious action film. Now, why I use that as an example of why I think that Class of 1984 in, is supposed to be taken seriously, because if Commando is an intentional satirical takedown of 1980s action films, then that would lead me to believe in a similar vein, Class of 1984, which is similarly ridiculous, is done in an intentional manner. It's over the top. It's violence and characters are stupid. And this is just kind of um, wink-winking and nudge-nudging people in the ribs about the fear-mongering of, even though this came out in 1982, Reagan's America hadn't really taken a place, but there certainly was on the rise a backlash to, you know, the kind of free-wheeling, uh, free-wheeling, excuse me, 1970s, and we had started to move as a country, and one could maybe argue the world, into a conservative reaction to the decades that had come before. However, when you have a work like Commando, which is so good at being so emblematic of a certain style, I don't see how you can take Class of 1984 as a better film than that, because if it's intending to be comedic or satirical, it's not as effective as Commando. So I'd have to believe then that he thinks this is a better one because he was intending to make a serious film. And then number three, the third reason why I ultimately think that Class of 1984 takes itself seriously is going back to our conversation in which David was uh, recommending exploitation films to me. It dawned on me that what he didn't say or what he uh, didn't explicitly say was he was recommending three of the best films in terms of quality in terms of legacy in terms of execution i guess certainly black christmas and my bloody valentine both have left legacies though if you've been listening to Con exploitation um, throughout the month of july then you have um understood that my opinion about th their legacies um basically that i fall on different uh, uh different sides of the fence black christmas is very much worth its classic legacy, and My Bloody Valentine is not. 
So class of 1984 is not necessarily or was not necessarily recommended to me because it was a great film, but because as I entail or, 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 or lay out every single week in this podcast, the recommendations are just supposed to be those which most typify the theme we're talking about. So Canexploitation is a sh- uh, as a subgenre was rooted at first in Canadian tax shelters set up for people to take advantage of, well, of those tax shelters, and thus make these small, low-budget films, which were, as the name implies, exploitative, that would throw some immature elements, some viscera, some blood and guts and women and sex to capitalize somewhat cheaply on a movement to to make a quick buck, basically. That doesn't imply anything about quality, that doesn't imply anything about artistic um, intention or integrity, it just implies that there was a, a window of time open in which filmmakers could exploit some tax loopholes, and they were trying to do what they could as cheaply as possible to tap into a market that was largely saturated by, or largely populated by, I I should say, young men. What do young men want, as we saw in the 1980s with these exploitation subgenres, the slasher genre, all sorts of stuff? They want violence, they want boobs, they want satisfying visceral experiences. Class of 1984 is a very visceral experience. I was actually kind of surprised at a few points how disturbing some of the, I shouldn't say disturbing, how graphic some of the content was. And I know that there was some uh, cutting that had to be done to this film to avoid uh, an X rating from the censors. Um, But there was not just, it wasn't just viscera and gore, but it was also mean-spiritedness, if you will. Um, the gang who terrorized Norris, how they made it personal, how it wasn't just because he was a, um, a teacher, but because he was a teacher that stood up to them, and how they made it so personal, even going so far as to rape his wife. And that should also clue you into why this film is supposed to be taken seriously, because... Comedy, satire, it shouldn't include shit such as a rape sequence to evoke a visceral reaction from you. And yet we have included in this film a, not a particularly long one, but a a certainly needless rape sequence. And I would argue that that all rape sequences are needless, but for the purpose of this specific film and the narrative... A sequence that wasn't needed to elicit a an extreme reaction from us as the audience. We didn't need to have that. We already were supposed to be following Norris, and we were already supposed to be believing that these characters were hideous and evil and uh, irredeemable, if you will. So it was entirely unnecessary. And then you couple that with some behind-the-scenes stories, such as uh, the actress who played... Um, Patsy, uh, Patsy was the, the kind of the, 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 the woman punk in, in the group that terrorized our, our poor innocent teacher from Nebraska or wherever he was transferred from. 
um, who said that a lot of people were miserable making this movie um, because of how 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 kind of extreme some of the ex- extras were, the punks who were included in the the group scenes, the club scenes, the the cafeteria fight, and how that one actress in particular who was forced to remove all of her clothing for um, Stegman to kind of prove that she could be part of the group, how wrecked she was during that sequence, a needless sequence, an ex- exploitative sequence. Once again, you don't include a sequence like that if you are trying to be satirical or if you are trying to be comedic. And now I realize I'm framing this as saying this film is a fail, or it's bad if it's trying to be a failed satire, um, but I think it's also, if it's trying to be a straightforward um, uh, comment on how violence begets violence, I think even then it's a huge misstep because of how the writer and the director, the writer, from what I understand, once he saw uh, the first cut, wanted to remove his name from it because of what the director had done with it. Um, Once again, feeding into this idea that this was a take-this-very-seriously drama. Um, I lost my train of thought. I apologize for that. But basically, kind of getting back to... uh, There is... A rape sequence, the stripping sequence, these are things that are not needed in a film that is trying to comment on this cycle, this vicious ongoing cycle of violence ultimately leading to violence. Um, So I have to believe that the inclusion of those sequences are done because the director really wanted people to feel like, um, here's how bad things are out there. Here is how corrupt the youth is becoming here's the vile shit that they are doing we have to draw attention to this stuff because we have to stop it um let's forget about the fact that this is uh, a miscasting or a basically a a very skewed interpretation of punk culture in the 1980s what they stood for, what they were trying to do, um, you know, just because they were anti-authority doesn't mean that they were anarchists. Now, certainly, I don't want to get into a, a, a conversation about the about sociology in uh, Canada or in the Americas or 1980s, but um, it, it almost kind of seems like the, the extreme depictions of these punks as not just punks, but as criminals is very much coming from the standpoint of an old curmudgeon who, this harkens back to what Dave was talking about, doesn't understand the youth culture and is terrified of them. And now, it's strange because within all these movies, and even within this one, there is some commentary, I think, that can be derived or that can be dug into about the ineffectualness or the ineffectiveness of authority figures think back to black christmas and how the police kind of get involved a little bit late and while uh the the lieutenant or the sheriff whatever the character is is well intentioned he doesn't really catch anyone or stop anyone think of in my bloody valentine how it's the authority figures the local government which brings back the valentine's day dance despite the history of the town and very much opens the town to these uh, murders and who 
uh, also keeps it a secret from the town, um, endangering the citizenry even more. And once again, the police are completely ineffective to stop anything, to reveal anything. It's not until the end, after the killer has been revealed, that they finally show up to save the day. Thanks, police. And then even in here, class of 1984, the school has security forces, but they kind of don't care. They are aware of things that are happening, but they recognize that they are powerless to stop it or are just apathetic towards what is going on. You know, there's kind of the, eh, what do you want me to do? Um, or even, you know, the one that comes in after Norris has, uh, well, after Stegman has staged it as though Norris has assaulted him, he comes in late. He didn't see anything. He just saw Stegman covered in blood, and he saw the blood on Norris's hands, but eh, what was he going to do? Um, and the police, you know, what are they going to do? Like, oh, you know, you basically, they're minors. You have to basically catch them in the act in order for anything to be done to them. The principal of the school, what do you want us to do? Suspend them? That's not going to do anything. You know, the, the, the authority figures or the systems that are set up to, in theory, help Norris be an effective teacher, be a, an effective adult, do not help him, cannot help him, don't seem interested in helping him. So there does seem to be a thread there of authority and authority figures being completely ineffective. And now that would make sense if it came from a younger generation, if it came from some young filmmakers, if the depictions of the youth in this film were not so diabolical, were not so extreme, were not so, were not such caricatures, basically. If there was a message in there about the ineffective nature of authority figures, it's lost by the fact that what is coming across louder, whether intentional or unintentional, is here are young punk kids and how they're irredeemable. I mean, I mean, even the, the song at the beginning of the film, the song sung by Al Alice Cooper, is basically just kind of like, look at my face, I am the future. And it's said it in, in, a, in a almost a threatening way. Um, and now I would like to believe that Alice Cooper is smarter than that. Maybe, I don't know if he wrote the song for the film or the filmmakers just used the song for the film thinking that it fit in with the theme they were trying to convey. Um... But the message from the very beginning is that the future, if this, if these kids are a future, then the world is, is hopeless, basically. And as someone who is middle, who is neither, you know, an older millennial, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of straddling between older and younger generations, um, that's bullshit. <laughs> I mean, at least, uh, at least coming from the, the, the perspective of, um, seeing how the youth developed in the 1980s like no the world did not go to shit because of them i mean the world went to shit because of boomers basically because of people probably like mark l lester basically and what they did and how they destroyed the future for us but that's a you know once again a different conversation but basically um yeah class of 1984 i don't think it's good i don't think it's effective I think it's a interesting time capsule in the sense of tapping into a very specific fear from a very uh, from a specific demographic in a very specific time and place in this country. Um, 
but I don't think it has any staying power. I don't think it's particularly well made. Um, and I just think it's kind of, uh, it's fear-mongering, basically, is what I think this film is doing. Trying to depict these kids in this extreme way because of, um, because they were afraid of what was coming up. Because the the director was afraid of, of, of what was in front of him. And, you know, there are some threads of some of the kids being good. The, the, the band or the orchestra certainly... Um, has a, a, a great recital at the end because of, of the, the lead that is taken by one of the students who herself is a very gifted musician. And you have that bullshit with Stegman where he's actually quite a talented pianist, if you will. Um, so it, it kind of makes you think that maybe there is something there about the systems the authority has failed Stegman and, um, you know, this, this life that he is perpetuating because of, of not being able to change the systems and because of authority, but it's not, that's not really there. And so that's not followed through. And it's just, he's, I don't know. I don't know. This movie was incredibly frustrating because it was just, um, I found it to be, I found the director to be kind of cantankerous and I don't see why this is his favorite movie other than he was trying to create a thesis on um, the future in 1982, and he finds it to be um, the, the most full realization of that thesis, a thesis which I think is bullshit and turned out to be wrong. Um, but as I said, um, David was not recommending me the three best films in terms of the quality or the ones that uh, came out of... Um, this time period, but the ones that were most typifying of what the filmmakers were trying to do. It just so happened that one of those filmmakers, Bob Clark, I think had a lot of talent with what he was trying to make, um, and then it just so happens that um, this one is basically the exact opposite. So um, if you want to take the time to rewatch Class of 1984, which I would not recommend you do, um, it's quite easy to see uh, for free in many venues, including uh, if you have a Prime uh, video subscription, um, you can find it there. You can find it on FlixFling, um, and you can even find it on Hoopla and Tubi if you are um, willing to sit through some ads, um, and you can see it on Shutter as well. Um, otherwise, if you don't uh, subscribe to any of those or you don't want to sit through ads, it's an easy rental or purchase on Amazon, on Google Play, on YouTube, um, and on Apple TV. So that does it for um, Class of 1984, and that does it for exploitation, which of course means that July is almost over, that August is coming up, and that there is a new theme and new guest on the horizon. And I am happy to announce that, um, unlike many months on this podcast, I do have a guest lined up, and I do have a new theme, and I'm very excited about it, um, because joining me for August will be Terry Mesnard, otherwise known as Gaily Dreadful, and Terry will be joining me to discuss some um, horror films with uh, homosexual subtext. And I'm very excited about that. Um, so I really hope that you are excited about that too, because I think it's going to be a great conversation. So um, yeah, be sure to tune in next week where I'll be talking to uh, Gaily Dreadful um, about those films. And where hopefully I will be just... Oh, I forgot. 
something. Once again, okay, or, you know, the whole back catalog thing, go to battleshipretention.com and find I Do Movies Badly in the podcast drop-down menu, or I Do Movies Badly.podbean.com, or tweet at me at um, Nolan Fixes Teeth. I have mentioned in the past a couple times the fact that I do another podcast with James McCormick called The Cast of Cthulhu, uh, reviewing adaptations of H.P. Lovecraft works, both uh, direct adaptations such as From Beyond and Dagon, and spiritual adaptations such as uh, you know John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness or The Void. Um, our most recent episode is about the 2020 film Underwater. Um, but just today, uh, the episode will not be going up until next week, but just today... Um, I was actually the uh, first guest on a very new podcast from uh, Fansided called, I believe it's going to be called the Lovecraft Country Chronicles. Um, So I was on that today to talk about um, a little bit of background on H.P. Lovecraft, his writing style, what is Lovecraftian horror, how that ties into Lovecraft Country, and kind of what we are hoping and excited about seeing Um, in the upcoming HBO adaptation of Lovecraft Country. So um, I will be sure to plug that on the uh, Facebook page for ID Movies Badly when the episode comes out, Um, but be on the lookout for uh, that. And also you can see it um, by going to, I'm sure, the Cast of Cthulhu Facebook page as well. But that officially does it now for Class of 1984, for Canuxploitation for the month of July. Please be sure to tune in next week where I'll be talking to Gailey Dreadful about horror films with um, homosexual subtext and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 